This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Joanna. Hi, I'm Joanna. I'm an anorexic, a bulimic, and a compulsive eater. Thank you, Brooke, for uh, having me here, and congratulations to the chip takers, and welcome to the newcomers, and happy birthday to our birthday girl. You know, this is a meeting of O-Readers Anonymous, and I'm going to focus my pitch on food, but I think it's really important to let you all know that I am an addict. I've never done one of anything in my life, and I don't know how to do anything in moderation. So it would be much more accurate for me to introduce myself as, Hi, I'm Joanna. I'm a horny, anorexic, bulimic, alcoholic, cokehead with an addiction to Louis Vuitton. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because I use all of those things, often in one day, to get out of myself, to numb out, to not feel my feelings, and to fill the God-sized hole inside my chest. I use those things to make me feel okay in a world where I don't feel safe. I sucked my thumb until I was 11 years old. And when my thumb came out of my mouth, food went in it. I can trace my compulsive eating back as early as four. I went through a six-month period where I would eat nothing but frozen cream spinach. Now, of course, my mother cooked it, but trust me, later in life I would prove that I could eat it frozen. And at 12, um, after starting to eat like bags and bags of cookies and chips and stuff like that at a time, I discovered bulimia. And like most bulimics, I thought I had invented bulimia. And I started to be bulimic starting at 12. That's also when I started using drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes because I was literally a garbage can shoveling anything in myself to try to deal with the emptiness and the fear and anxiety. I did a lot of compulsive dieting. I I tried every diet under the face of the earth. There was some ridiculous macrobiotic diet back in the 70s and 80s where you ate this gross combination of stuff and you could lose 10 pounds in three days. It never worked for me. I tried brushing my teeth before I ate because I thought it would make me not want to eat. You know, I I, I ate weird combinations of stuff, and, you know, basically around 16 years old, I was exhausted. I was tired of the bulimia and the yo-yo dieting and all that stuff, and I decided anorexia was just much easier. And I went on the cocaine-induced anorexia diet. You know, from 16 to 19, I I was anorexic, and I I used to say I was, like, world's worst anorexic. My stable weight was 92 pounds. Um, I did get down to 90 one day, but I ate a carrot and drank a Diet Coke and shot back up. And it's actually not a joke. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but my metabolism was wrecked. So until 19, I was was anorexic, and then I got a boyfriend. And suddenly food was okay, and life was okay, and I was being taken care of because I had him. And I started to eat again, and I feel really bad for him because that's when I shot up to 150 pounds. So within a six-month period, I had a 60-pound weight fluctuation. And it went on and on like that until I was 27. So basically for 15 years. There was, the bulimia was the common theme through all of it. And for 15 years, I tried every diet under the face of the sun. I tried self-help books. I tried therapy. I tried hypnotherapy. You name it, I tried it. I used to keep diaries of calorie count and fat gram. 
You know, I put little smiley faces or frowny faces next to the totals. I went to a nutritionist, not because I needed to learn about health, but I wanted to know how to weigh and measure my food using my hands so that I could know how much I was eating when I was out. I did carry scales around. When I traveled on business, I carry a food scale with me. I was, when I got in here, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I could not, I could no longer focus on what I was going to eat, what I'd eaten, and what I looked like as a result of eating, and what you thought I looked like as a result of eating. That was all I thought about. And what I've since learned since coming into this program in 1995 was that all of that stuff is just busy talk that my brain does to divert me from my primary issue. It's not the food, it's the feelings. And I can trace my thinking back to five years old. It's one of my earliest memories. I had just moved to New York City with my family from Boston, and I had a new little friend, and she was prettier than I was. She was smarter than I was. We took ballet together. She had nicer tutus than I did. She had a mom who stayed home, and she had a sister, which meant her home life was way better than mine. And so at five years old, I didn't know who I was, but I knew I didn't like myself. And at five years old, I didn't know what life was supposed to be like, but I knew I didn't like mine. And where does that thinking come from? Was I born with that, or is that a result of my conditioning? I don't know. And you know what? Frankly, today I believe that's irrelevant. The reality of it is that's a line of thinking that's dogged me for my entire life. I can summarize my thinking in three basic themes. I'm a piece of shit, my life is crap, and it's never going to get better. (laughs) So when I came in these rooms in 1995, you guys were speaking a foreign language. I did not understand what you were saying. And it took me six months to figure this out. I came into meetings and then I'd go out and eat and overeat and and be bulimic and and do my deal. But one day, um, I walked into a meeting on February 4th of 1996. I can't tell you why, but for whatever reason, I was done. And that, as of today, is my abstinence state. God willing, that will always be my abstinence state. My abstinence is I can eat whatever I want. I just can't purge and that a Diet Coke and a carrot are not a meal for a day. And that's how I handle my anorexia. (laughs) And what I got here was freedom from the obsession with food. And it's the greatest gift in my life. My bulimia absence is the greatest thing I've ever received in life. I cherish it more than I cherish anything. I don't have children, (laughs) but as of right now, my bulimia absence is it. Because I never, ever thought I'd be done with that cycle. But I can tell you that what happened and I think it's important that I, I always try to mention this when I can work it into a pitch, is I have not been in these rooms since 1995. You know, I get credit with being, with being abstinent for 13 and a half years, but um, I did not use program the entire time. What happened was I came in here and I got freedom from the obsession. I decided I didn't need you guys. Why do I need to continue to talk about food when I'm no longer thinking about it or obsessed with it? And I left. And I was out there for about eight years on my own without a God and without a program. And when I finally got a hold of some of those other addictions that I mentioned earlier, (laughs) and I stopped acting out in those areas, a really funny thing happened. My eating disorder started to flare up. And one night I found myself standing after having eaten a very, very large meal, which was not a binge. I know what a binge is. That was not a binge, but it was big. And I stood in my bathroom on the door of my bathroom, and I came very, very close to throwing up. Because to me at that moment, that was my best solution. But I I knew what the real solution was. The real solution was OA. And so after eight or nine years, I actually don't remember how long I was out, I came back in these rooms. And so as a result, when I got back in, I grabbed on as, um, you know, the dying grab onto a life preserver, which is what it says in step one of the AA 12 and 12. And it also says in the big book that we are people who would not normally mix, that we're like passengers from a shipwrecked ocean liner. But in here, when I share, you guys understand 
you understand the feelings. You might not be able to relate to the story, but you can understand the thinking and the behavior and, and the feelings behind what I do. And here's where I find my recovery. There are a lot of ways to do recovery from an eating disorder. There is not one right way, and there's not one right way to do this program. But I choose to use 12 steps for my recovery, and I'm very happy with the way I do it, and so I'm going to share that with you today. But it doesn't mean it's the right way. It's certainly not the only way. You know, the big book tells me that I share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So as a result, I don't mention people, places, things, and institutions because I need to be general. And Tradition 5 says that my primary purpose is to carry the message to the overeater who still suffers. So I'm going to keep the focus on spirituality and on the 12 steps because that's our primary purpose here. And Tradition 6 says that we don't endorse outside enterprises. So I'm not going to mention any books or CDs or movies or anything like that. And Tradition 10 tells me that we have no opinion on outside issues. So I'm not going to talk about any specific religions or politics or anything like that. And I mention all of that, um, one, because we're on a podcast right now. And I promise you that what I'm about to say, I, I don't have an original thought in my head. Everything I'm about to tell you, I learned in these rooms. I learned from other people sharing it. Now, maybe they were breaking a tradition when they shared it, but they shared it. But more importantly, if I didn't learn it actually in the room, I learned it because I was directed to it by somebody in these rooms. Because when I came in here, I had no God. I had Santa Claus God. God's good to you if you're a good girl, and if you're a bad girl, God's bad to you. And the problem is life doesn't really work that way. You know, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. So that concept of a higher power wasn't working for me. So when I came back in, I went to meetings, and I listened for people who talked about spirituality. And when I related to what they said, or I liked what they said, I walked up to them afterwards, and I would say to them, can you please tell me about your God, and more importantly, where did you get him? And then I did whatever I was directed to do without question. And that led me on a really interesting journey that led me a block away and then more recently led me as far as Thailand. And that I have read myriad books. I've listened to various spiritual leaders. I've gone to services. I've gone to ceremonies for religions and things that I don't belong to and I've never experienced before, but it didn't matter to me. I'm like, I'm a seeker. And I'm like a spiritual sponge. And the beauty of 12-step programs is they tell you that you have to find a higher power as you understand him, but they don't tell you what higher power to find. And so I had to go out and find that on my own. So what I want to share with you is basically how I work this program and what I've learned, you know, my spirituality. And what I can say is that I think, in my opinion, (laughs) my humble opinion, I work a really rigorous program. I'm blessed to have enough time right now in a lifestyle where I can go to six to nine meetings a week. And to me, meetings are medicine. You know, if I had a medical condition that required daily medication, I would take my medication. I have a condition that affects my thinking. And meetings are the medicine that straightens out that thinking. And if I'm not in a meeting every couple of days, my thinking gets seriously wonky. You know, and the things I think are good ideas are not good ideas because when left alone, when talking to myself in my own head, I am talking to an addict whether I've used that day or not. So I have to call or get to a meeting and talk to a sober, abstinent addict who's going to give me solution as opposed to my thinking, which can be a little wonky. You know, page 87 of the big book says, by the way, I will quote program literature because it's program approved. So page 87 of the big book says that having just made conscious contact with God, it's not probable that we're going to be right at all times, and this may result in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know how long it takes for me to, you know, no longer be a newcomer with God, but as of right now, I still am. 
So I like to run my brilliant thinking by my sponsor and by other fellows. Because I am fairly confident when something's God-directed, but I don't always know. And if I take action without hitting the pause button and practicing restraint of tongue and pen and running it by somebody in program, I frequently get myself in a situation that's not comfortable. And as an addict, that's not good for me. I don't deal well with discomfort. That spirals down into low self-esteem, which spirals down into self-hatred, which spirals down into the need to act out. The big book tells me on 85 that I, I'm never cured of this disease. I'm never cured of this way of thinking, that what I get is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So on a daily basis, like I said, I, try to, I go to meetings. I'm in a meeting every single day. I make outreach calls. You know, I talk to my fellows. I have a lot of really close friends in program who check me when I'm not when I'm sounding like uh, I'm going off on some random tangent. I have spon- I have multiple programs, so I have multiple sponsors who I check in with on a regular basis. I read. I pray and meditate every day. Step 11 says sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Meditation is not extra credit. It's prayer and meditation. So I pray and meditate daily. And just to prove that I'm an addict and don't do anything in moderation, I meditate way longer than any normal human being ought to. And I don't know which part of that equation that I just listed is working, so I'm not willing at this point to give up any of it because I don't want to find out that I gave up the one magic thing that was working. I feel like everything I ever needed to learn about life, I learned from you guys. You know, what I learned when I came in here, the big book tells me that I have a disease that makes me selfish, self-centered, and self-will run riot. It's on page 62. It pretty much encapsulates my personality. You know, and when I came in here, what I learned is that I am, that all human beings are beautiful and perfect as they uniquely are. That we're like the unique flowers that together make up a beautiful, perfect garden. And that my job is to be my unique self. That's my only job in this world is to be who I am, to live the life that I'm given. I'm not meant to be anybody that, you know, some random ideal I've come up with or some random ideal that society says I should be. I'm meant to be me. And that in doing that, my second purpose is to be of service. And the big book talks a lot about service, starting on page 20. Like, the first reference to service that I've found, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is on page 20 where it says, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. You know, they hit us with it early. Like, people, if you want to stay sober, you've got to be of service. Which is why, frankly, sponsorship works. You know, not only do I have sponsors, I sponsor. Because in order to keep this thing, I have to pass this thing on. When I'm sponsoring and I'm talking to people, I hear myself saying program. And when I hear that, it makes it easier for me to follow it. Anyway, but I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. So basically, I think that my main purpose in life is to be my unique self and to be of service to others. That's why I'm here. And who I am, it's not about the content of my life. It's not about what I have. You know, it's not about being blonde and brown-eyed and having a certain car and having a certain job and being a wife or being a parent or being a daughter. And it's not about the content of what I've done. It's not about what schools I've gone to and where I grew up or any of that stuff. Who I am is about my energy in this very moment. None of that stuff exists. The, the What I've done stuff is in the past. It's gone. It lives up here in my mind. And, you know, what I have could go away in a split second. That's on loan to me. At the moment of death, it's all gone. It's the great equalizer. Not to be morbid. So... None of this stuff is what makes my life. What makes my life is my essence, my being. So basically what I try to do in life is to remember that I don't get attached to outcomes. 
You know, expectations are man's greatest source of unhappiness. There's really nothing about scary about life when I'm not attached to the results. And so I try to enjoy the experience of living. Now, I look at life like it's a roller coaster ride. And, you know, this might be a bad analogy for people who don't like roller coasters, but the truth is when I get on a roller coaster, you know, there's, like, parts of it's fun, parts of it's scary, some it's a little boring and predictable. And when I get off, I'm like, hey, that was cool, I want to go again. So, you know, when life is all said and done, I want to enjoy the ups and downs, and when it's over, I want to look back and go, hey, that was fun, I want to go again. So, as a result, I have to trust God. I have a higher power now that I believe is leading me to happiness. God's not working against me, he's working for me. You know, the big book on page 133 says, God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And I really embrace that concept. In the 12 and 12, in step two, it talks about how God's like our cosmic parent. You know, when I want something, when I'm in that I want, I don't want, I want, I don't want, I'm like an impetuous child who wants candy before dinner. You know, and I'm saying to my parent, can I please have candy before dinner? My parents saying, no, 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 it's not good for you. I really want candy before dinner. I swear I'll eat my vegetables. No, 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 it's going to give you a stomachache. Please give me my candy before dinner. You know, and God, my cosmic parent, is saying to me, I know what's best for you. I can see around dark corners. I know what's healthy for you. Trust me. And yet, I still hang on. The other way to look at it is God's my employer, which it talks about on page 63 of the big book. You know, when I'm an employee and I get asked to do something by my employer that I don't want to do, I get asked for one of two reasons. I get asked because I'm the best person for the job, or I get asked because I actually don't know how to do that aspect of the job and I need to learn it so I can be a better employee. And either way you look at it, I don't need to have the whole big picture. I don't need to know what the, you know, what the, like, financial sheet looks like and who's involved and what's involved and why we're doing it. I just need to do the task that's handed to me. So I kind of look at God that way, too. I recently had, I recently moved, and I had a lot of problems with my electronics when I tried to rehook them up. And I don't know if any of you have had electronic problems. This is like several hours on the phone with these companies. You know, the way I looked at that was one of two things was going on. Either God didn't want me to carry out my plan because it would have put me on the freeway at the wrong time and maybe something bad would have happened to me. Or maybe one of those people, I'm a really nice customer. I, I believe in, like, you know, the big book says love and tolerance of others is our code. I take that to heart. You know, even if something's not going my way, I'm nice and sweet because it's not the person on the other end of the phone's fault. And maybe that person needed to have that experience with a customer that day. So I was just there to be of service. I don't know. All I know is that that was my chore for the day and, and I did it. You know, because the truth of the matter is that I can't control my destiny. I can choose to suffer my destiny or I can choose to enjoy my destiny. And today I choose happiness. Life still happens and if I struggle through it, I'm just going to suffer more. You know, I can't stop that kind of stuff. You know, resistance is like a waste of energy. So when I feel my heart start to tighten, you know, your chest, you start to race and your heart starts to tighten, you can literally feel it clamp up. Just take a breath. I choose happiness, and I open my heart to the situation. Because the reality of it is that I can't control my thinking. I really don't think that my thoughts will ever be these, like, wonderful, lovely, perfect thoughts that I want them to be. You know, my thoughts are based on my conditioning, um, and my conditioning has everything to do with, like, where I was brought up and the language I spoke and the city I grew up in and the religion I was and what the values my parents taught me and my school taught me, all kinds of stuff that I had no control over. You know, so I can't control the thinking, but I do have a say over the reaction that I have to those thoughts today. And so when I'm, like, trying to get the world to fit my mold of what the world should be, all I'm doing is, like, defending my psyche, defending the boundaries that I've put up. You know, so today I make a commitment. Today my commitment is to live life without boundaries, without mental boundaries, to lean into the sharp edge. 
that can occasionally be uncomfortable. I, I don't like discomfort. But that means that I walk into every situation saying, you know, looking at life and saying, I don't know if this is good or bad. I just say maybe. And I don't get attached to the situation because I know it's going to pass. And I'll give you an example of that. Two years ago, May of 07, I got downsized. And I spent 20 years in a career. I had a lot of success. And when I got downsized, I thought it was the worst thing that would ever happen to me. I was like, this is a disaster. I spent the summer in the Hamptons, and then I lived in Paris and studied French. And I thought, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And then right after that, I got a job offer that I didn't want. And I thought, well, ick, but I need to go back to work. And then the job offer fell through, and I thought, thanks a lot. And then the company got sold. Everybody who had been hired got let go, and I thought, yay! Uh Then the economy went bad, and I couldn't find another job, and I thought, wow, I'm really in trouble now. And then I just got this brilliant idea to go back to school, and now I'm happy again. It is one situation that I can look at myriad ways. And so the moral of that story is I am still at, I'm not at the point where I'm willing to judge that, that situation. I'm still looking and saying, maybe, before deciding if getting let go is good or bad. The other thing is that I try to remember that thoughts, words, and actions have cause and effect. I can manufacture goodness and evil by how I conduct myself in this world, which is what I was talking about before when I was talking about being of service on the phone with the tech guys. If I'm walking down the street and I smile at somebody, I have the capability of making their day. And if I scowl at them or I say something nasty or I flip somebody off on the freeway, I have the capability of hurting that person. You know, so today for me, life is about doing no harm and being of service. And along those same lines, you know, because service is the source of inner joy. And along those same lines, you know, contentment is the source of happiness. Ordinary pleasures turn to pain when I overuse them. And because I'm an addict, I overuse them. Unreasonable desire, in my experience, has no limit. So I'm never content. When I'm looking outside of myself saying, I want this, I want this, I want that, whether it's the guy, the job, the car, the family, the food, that like you name it. Whatever I've got my eyes set on, it's not going to solve the problem. That constant inner chatter just causes more suffering. And none of that stuff's going to fix me because it doesn't reach the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that I don't feel complete within myself. And today, I go to God for that. And the other thing that you guys taught me is how to play nicely in the playground of life. There's this great story in the big book. In the third edition, which is the one I have, it's called Dr. Alcoholic Addict. But in the fourth edition, it's called Acceptance is the Answer. And Dr. Paul wrote the story. And Dr. Paul says that he, didn't, he thought that being an alcoholic would be the worst thing that ever happened to him. And it turns out that it's the best thing. And that goes to show that he doesn't know what's good or bad for him. God does. And I really took that to heart. I don't know what's good or bad for me. God knows what's good or bad for me. Because I promise you, three years ago, you know, when I was still with, still had the career, still had the apartment, still had the car, still had the social life, whatever, I thought that was the answer. And if you had told me that I would be divorced, without children, in graduate school, out of work for two years. And, you know, I would have said, no, I'm not. I would kill myself. That's not going to happen to me. And I promise you, I am mentally, emotionally, and physically happier and healthier than I've ever been in my entire life. And what that proves to me is I don't know what's best for me. God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. God is leading me to happiness if I would just surrender I am like a cat clawing onto the curtains and with I want, I want, I want as I'm being dragged off. So if I don't know what's best for me, I don't know what's good for anybody. 
You know, I really don't. So I've learned in life to ask people if they want my opinion. And if they do, I share my experience without dictating my idea of what the right outcome is. Because we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And my opinion is just my point of view. It's not necessarily right. It's based on my conditioning. And the other thing is that I've learned to be impeccable with my word. You know, we say in here that I mean what I say because I say what I mean. I just don't say it in a mean way. And I don't take things personally. Nothing, and I mean nothing, that other people say or do is because of me. It all has to do with their conditioning. Because my inner and my outer world are exactly the same. There's no difference. Because my perception of the outer world is colored by my inner subjectivity. I, I see it through colored glasses. And my inner subjectivity is a result of my conditioning. And my conditioning is not the same as any of yours. And I haven't walked a second in your shoes. So who am I to say what's right or wrong for you? And the other thing is, I don't make assumptions. I don't assume I know what, you know, what you're thinking. You know, I can't tell you how many times a sponsor will say to me, I know he thinks this. I know she thinks that. You know, I'm like, really? Is that what they said? Well, no, but I just know them. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. You know, so I don't make assumptions, and I find the courage to ask you, you know, and to express my needs and, and, and to set my own boundaries. And then the final thing is that I do the best that I can in every situation, and then I let it go. And my death changes from moment to moment because in every level in life I'm learning. I am a student of life and I am a seeker of spirituality. And every moment I am learning and changing. So my death changes. But practice makes the master. Everything I ever learned, I learned through repetition. So I have to practice at this stuff. And I'm not always going to do it right and I'm not always going to do it, you know, I'm not always going to be perfect at it. But God, the big book tells me love and tolerance of others is my code. So I try to treat everybody with uh, the same high level of respect. It doesn't matter who you are, what station in life you are, what, what role you're playing in my life. This, I try to treat you with the same high level of respect because we're all God's kids. Dr. Paul said this in acceptance also. We're all God's children. We each have a right to be here. When I gossip about or criticize you, when I gossip about or criticize myself, I'm criticizing God. I'm saying I know better than God. You know, we all want the same thing. We all want happiness and freedom from suffering. We just go about it in different ways. You know, so I have to remember, like Dr. Paul said, acceptance is the answer. And serenity comes from accepting people, places, things, for being what they are. So, like, when I find something in someone else I don't like, I look for that thing in myself, and then I change it. Because by changing myself is how I'm going to change the world. I can't change you. I can change me. But if I really have a really good resentment cooking that I can't get rid of, you know, the big book on page 67 says, I have to treat you like you're sick. Because you're spiritually sick. And how would I treat a sick person? Well, I wouldn't retaliate. I, I would try to I would try to do no harm. I would try to be of service. And if I can't be of service, I at least very try to do no harm. So there's a story in the big book called um, Freedom from Bondage. And in it she says that we pray to the people who upset us. And prayer replaces bitterness, resentment, and hatred with compassion, understanding, and love. And you don't just get up in the morning and pray for that person once. Every single time I think of somebody, I have to pray for them. Every time I have that negative thought like, ooh, that, I can't believe he, oh, stop. And I pray. I pray for them to have everything that I want. Or I pray for them to have everything they want. I pray for them to be happy, you know, healthy, and safe. If that doesn't work, ultimately, I forgive the person. Because the bottom line is, you guys have taught me to love myself so much that I don't want to continue to suffer the injustice of your actions. When I'm angry, I'm taking the poison pill and waiting for you to die. What good does that do? So I have to let it go. The big book tells me lack of power is my dilemma. It says that on page 45. Lack of power is my dilemma. 
and my need to control people, places, things, and situations, that comes from my fear. It comes from my fear of powerlessness over life and when I'm going to die. And on page 68, it tells me my courage comes from reliance on God and playing the role that he assigns me in this lifetime. So I need to surrender. And surrender is not compliance. Compliance is this. God, I'm really, really willing to do whatever you want for me in my life right now, um, and um, hopefully it'll be getting me my job back. Thanks. Right? That's compliance. Like, I'm really cool with the direction you've got me in. Just give me what I want. Soon. Surrender is complete surrender to the direction that I'm being led in. And there's this great thing I read in a book. When the water in the stream meets the ocean, it becomes the ocean. Through surrender, man becomes greater, not weaker. And ultimately, I have to have compassion for myself. I'm talking about having compassion for all, these, for all of you, but I need to have compassion for myself. So when I, you know, I have a really nasty internal dialogue sometimes, and she can really get going, and I would be seriously embarrassed if you all ever heard what I said to myself. So I have to learn to speak to myself the same way I would speak to a little girl. And ultimately, I have to remember that I am not my thoughts and emotions. I am not my negative thinking. That's not who I am. I am the place where those thoughts and emotions rise and set. So I do this thing where it's called, I, I sit in a seat of consciousness, and I free myself. I don't get attached to the negative emotions, the negative thinking, the negative feelings. You know, I just let the mind play out its little melodrama, and I don't, I'm not an actor in it. I don't take a role. I just sort of let it happen and let it pass. It's kind of like the waves of the ocean. You know, the, the, thinking, the thinking comes in, the thinking leaves. The thinking comes in, the thinking leaves. If I catch a negative thought, I'm like a surfer trying to ride out a bad wave. Like, hello, bail. Get off the wave. Don't ride it. I know I've said a lot, and I, I, I want to hear from you guys. So I'm just going to wrap it up by saying if you get nothing else out of this, there's two things that I use on a daily basis to deal with my disease, thinking, and acting. I have two questions I have to always ask myself. I ask my friends. I ask my sponsees. Where is God? And what step are we going to work on this one? That's the only two things I need to know to lead a life that's happy, joyous, and free. When I came into Overeaters Anonymous, you guys gave me a life when I didn't even realize that what I was doing wasn't actually living. I'm eternally grateful to OA. I'm eternally grateful to the people who came before me, who passed down their wisdom. And I'm eternally grateful to the people who come after me, who honor me with the ability to pass down what I've learned. Thank you so much. Any questions? Um, when you travel, how do you take your program with you? When I travel, how do I take my program with me? Um, prayer and meditation, number one, always. Um, I always travel with a big book. In fact, I have a small version of the big book in my purse right now. Email is a good thing. I go to meetings in every country I've ever been in, which means I've gotten to be in meetings in Thailand, in Paris, in London, um, and all over the United States. I basically do the exact same thing I do as if I were home. And I use the phone a lot. Sometimes when I'm overseas, that's not always possible, and it's a little expensive, and then I rely a little more on email and on the meetings there. And whenever I go to fellowship there in out of town, when I'm out of town, I always make sure to identify as being out of town. I let people know how long I'm going to be there. And when somebody shares something I like, I make sure to approach them after the meeting and get their phone number so that I can reach out to them if I need them so that I have a local contact. Yeah. What do you do when character defects you've let go come back, or what do you do when you find? What do I do when character defects I've let go of come back, and how do I work with new ones that I find? 
you know, in the promises, the nine-step promises, one of the promises, self-seeking will slip away. And I always like to joke, self-seeking will slip away and then occasionally slips back. <laughs> We're never rid of our character defects. The seven-step prayer says, humbly asks him to remove those defects that stand in the way of our usefulness to our fellows. So that means that occasionally one of my defects might actually be useful to my fellows. For example, I have a sponsee who calls me and I've got a short fuse that day and I get angry at them. That's not my normal way of operating, but I'm a human being, and it happens. So one of two things goes on there. You know, in the times when that happens, I find that those conversations actually turn into amazing revelations. The sponsee will have an opportunity to stand up to me, or maybe set a boundary, and that's something that's difficult for that person to do, and it's the first time they've done it, and it's an extremely freeing experience for them. And all of a sudden, my anger, which is something I'm embarrassed and ashamed of, has actually helped somebody else in their recovery. So I don't know that that anger wasn't meant to be there. The second thing that happens is I get an opportunity to do a 10-step, you know, continue to take personal inventory when we're wrong, promptly admitted it, and to admit that, you know, I'm a human being and I just got angry and I'm sorry. That wasn't appropriate and then it has nothing to do with you. That had to do with everything else that happened to me this morning. How do I do all of this and not throw up? How, how do I not overeat? Um, well, I can tell you that I have an imperfect abstinence um, with, every, with my food. Um, I do not have an imperfect abstinence when it comes to my bulimia. I have not purged in 13 and a half years. But um, I do compulsively eat. You know, I do occasionally turn to food for soothing. I don't go on 5,000 calorie binges anymore. You know, overeating today looks like eating really quickly. Um, be eating really mindlessly and eating a bigger meal than I'm normally comfortable with. And to me, that is a sign. You know, this is a red flag. When I am considering throwing up, when I am, um, which frankly has actually occurred to me, the thought to, to purge occurred to me about a year and a half ago. Um, so I'm, I don't believe that I'm ever free of this disease and of that thinking, of that being a solution. But that's a maladaptive solution, and I know that there are better solutions for me today. When I'm overeating, when my food's a little wonky, um, that's a red flag. And I'm grateful for that red flag. And what that red flag says to me is, hey, you're having emotions. You know, go call your sponsor. Go call somebody else in program. Go to a meeting and share. Share what's going on with you. Do some writing. Pray to God. Meditate. Don't stuff the emotions because the emotions will come out in my food. And I'm grateful for that because people who don't have this program or who don't have this disease, they don't get, they don't get the red flag. You know, I get something, I have, I have an early warning system basically. And I'm grateful for it. And no matter what, I don't drink or use. So when I say I don't drink or use no matter what, I don't drink alcohol, I don't use drugs, I don't use food, I don't use shopping. I don't use men. And let me tell you something, that can be pretty raw sometimes. But on page 43 of the big book, a guy's telling his story, and he says that he, he wasn't a low-bottom drunk, then, and he had a pretty good life. That regardless of the fact that he had a good life, when he came into program, he, he says, I wouldn't trade my worst day sober for my best day drinking. And I really feel that way. I would not go back to my old life, and my old life is pretty good. I would not go back to that life for anything in the world because I hated myself. And I don't feel that way today. She said, I pray and meditate every day, and what does that look like? I believe when I'm praying, I'm asking God for direction, and when I'm meditating, I'm listening for his answer. 
I'm a little hesitant to go into the details of how I meditate because it's kind of an outside issue. It would be like standing up here and talking about Christianity or Judaism. And, you know, to be general is what makes the room safe for everybody. And I'm really happy to talk to you about it afterwards, though. I, I'd love to share it. I just don't know that it's the right thing to do on a group level. That's time. Thank you.